This is Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, this is Bob Johnston, and you're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio, 89.5 FM and 92.5 FM in good old McLean County in Bloomington Normal, 88.3 in Pontiac, 97.1 in Lincoln, 89.1 in DeKalb, Sycamore, and we're continuing to grow covering most of central Illinois and now some of northern Illinois and hoping to reach out a little bit more to the south. We're going to have a great show for you today. Remember that it's brought by you and made possible by you, so any donations that you can give would greatly be appreciated. If you would like to make a donation, you can go to our website, catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's catholicspiritradio.com. You'll find out a lot of information about us there and uh, information about something that you may be able to contribute, and also on how to make a donation. Uh, We would be grateful for anything that you might be able to give, and it would be greatly appreciated and will help help us out a lot. I'm here with my wife, Lynn, today, and I hope everybody out there is praying for our mad, 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 mad world. Uh, It sure needs prayer. We're going to take a little break from serious things today. Well, there are sort of, I shouldn't say, from serious things. We're going to have some serious uh, questions about the Catholic faith. And uh, I've had some magazines that I subscribe to and uh, Catholic Answers. And in the back of Catholic Answers, uh, there's a section that has questions that people write in about the faith. And I've had some that have been lying around in my office for quite some time. And so I'm going to go over these questions I'm going to ask these questions to my wife. I am trusting that she did not get at the basket where I keep these magazines and hasn't been looking through them. And uh, I went through the questions myself, and I'm going to be honest as to the answers uh, that I gave before I looked uh, looked up the answers. I hope my wife is the same. Uh, She went to Catholic school, and I didn't. And... uh, she was one of those people who probably, I'm willing to bet, was a favorite of the nun and probably knew all the answers to a lot of things. So we'll see. But if she gets these questions, too many of them right, I'm going to suspect that she's been going through that stuff while I'm not looking and not telling I couldn't it. find it if I wanted to. Well, I try to keep Buried them. underneath all the crap you put in that basket. I try to keep them like that, but you're... You're yeah, good you at, try to keep it that You're way. good at how, how come it is when I can't find anything, all I have to do is ask you, and you always are able to tell me where it's at. It's a male thing. That can't, you can't find anything. So you're always poking around, going through stuff. So no, we'll, we have a grandson that went away to college, and second week he was there, he called his mother one morning and said, I can't find my glasses. But, and she's... You know, not exactly there. She's here. He's down in southern Illinois. And she said, what do you expect that I'm going to do? <laughs> she found but them. But she told him where to find Yeah, she, where told, they him, were. she told him where to look, and he found them. <laughs> so, okay. At any rate, uh, is there anything you'd like to make comments on before we start the show, Lynn? No, no. I hope everybody has had a good Lent. We're almost finish getting yeah. close to the easter season and holy week coming up real quick yeah it won't be long and boy do we ever need it and again as i said last week the best thing that catholics out there can do 
to help probably the country and uh, to help the world, and that is learn your faith and stick to Catholic dogma. It's been handed down for 2,000 years, and it will get you through the hard times that I think are probably coming for the world if the, what we're seeing going on today is any sign as to what may be coming along the line. So that's one thing that you can do. Learn your faith. Be orthodox. And when I mean orthodox, I mean be, you know, follow the doctrines and teachings of the church as they were handed on from Christ to the apostles and the apostles on down to us. And do as best you can to be able to answer questions that somebody might ask of you. And uh, that, that's one of the greatest things you can do to become a good Catholic. Right. And I hope some of these questions may help along that line. So Right. It's so very important. You know, the people have gone through over the last 2,000 years many political upheavals and everything else. And being prisoners and <clears throat> some in the gulag during the Russian Stalin thing. But you know what's kept it, pulled them through? is their faith. And they've done studies on that. It's their faith. But you have to know it. Yes, yes, they have. I mean, that's one of the things Alexander Solonitsyn, who spent uh, 10 years in a Russian gulag under some horrible, horrible, horrible conditions, said, he said, the people who had a strong faith were the people who were able to come through unbroken. And so it's important. Uh, in, in hard times especially, to especially for Catholics, because the, one of the most important things of the Mass is that you can give up your sufferings as a gift, as a sacrifice, along with the uh, priest in making the sacrifice of the Mass, because the Mass is a sacrifice, and uh, we can add our sacrifices with it, and so your suffering actually is something that you can offer up, and uh, it is something that be actually united with Christ can be a suffering. positive thing and help uh, you to be a better Christian. So, at any rate, we'll start with some of these questions taken from my Catholic answers <laughs> here. Uh, I was going to ask you this. Some of these are sort of like a subjective um, type questions. You know, they have more of a long type of an answer, just not a black and white answer. So, uh, you, you know, you can be uh, right about the answer to the question in different ways. And so this first one is sort of like that. But I'm going to go ahead and ask it. And there are, there are some kernels here, though, that are important. And uh, we'll get at those for sure. But uh, the question is, is uh, I saw something that seemed prophetic in a dream I had. How seriously, seriously should I take it? So in other words... Can dreams be prophetic, and uh, is it uh, you know legal in a Catholic church, or is it in keeping with Catholic theology to look at a dream from a prophetic point of view, Lynn? Well, that it really is subjective, but <clears throat> look at in the old, even in the Old Testament, uh, when Joseph went to Egypt and so forth, he had dreams that were prophetic. And a lot of people through the ages have, and this is how they knew what, well, they were forewarned of what was going to happen. But to live your life depending on what you had in a dream 
would be could be very catastrophic. I that that's the best answer I can give to that. Well, one of the answers, of course, is that first of all, as far as the church goes, uh, the teaching of the church is that all. Uh, public revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. So there's no more revelation to be added, you know, to the doctrines and dogmas of the church. A private revelation are looked at as something that is strictly uh, a revelation that is uh, personal and, and, and appropriate to the person who had that, you know, revelation. And the church teaches that if you have a what you think is a revelation and it does not contradict scripture and it doesn't contradict the tradition and dogmas and teaching of the church, then it certainly would be okay to believe in that as far as that goes, but it's not something that you can impose upon someone else and no one else would be required, you know, to believe in it. Uh, so, uh, that's, you know, one of the answers to it, uh, but uh, again, people have had dreams in the Bible, and they, you know, they were told, and they were prophetic. So uh, something could be a dream could be prophetic to you, and it it could affect your life, and it could be something that uh, maybe would be a sign that you might follow. But be very careful to make sure that it isn't contradicting any of the teachings and dogmas and doctrines of the church. It doesn't go against Scripture or the tradition that has been handed down to us. And the other thing uh, to, to think and, and, and talk about a dream is that uh, in a dream, I, I, you know, you, you, you don't, you, are you not exactly in control of what you dream? So the question would be, suppose you dream of something that is sinful, and would that be a sin? Suppose you dream that you stole something, or suppose you dream that you took revenge, or suppose, you know, anything that would, you know, would be a sin and sinful. Would that be a sin in, in, that you've committed actually by dreaming about that? No. No, it would not. That's not something that you're consciously doing. There's, there's the key, that word that you said, consciously doing. In other words, in order to be a sin, something has to be willful. It has to be an act of the will. And, of course, when you're asleep and dreaming, you know, there's no act of the will. The dream comes to you. You don't exactly choose it to happen. Nevertheless, a dream can be a suggestion that you may be doing so if you're dreaming about getting even with somebody it could be that uh, for, you know you've been thinking about it a lot and uh, it's something that you want to do and it could trigger you know a warning that you had better uh, be, be aware of that or if you dreamed that you know you were stealing something it could be that you have a desire to acquire property that doesn't belong to you so they could be signs in a sense that uh, you're doing something wrong while you're wakeful and uh, you might want to take care of that but no uh, if you dream something and uh, do something in your dream that wouldn't be appropriate it's not a sin because you don't have control over your will you're not doing it willfully right because you have to have that willful uh, desire to participate okay here's a good uh, question here this is more of a black and white answer. Uh, if Jesus has successors in the popes and bishops, why doesn't he have successors as kings or leaders of nations? Can you answer that one? Because one is religious and one is civil? I mean, I'm... Well, that's... 
that's sort of <clears throat> dancing around it, but uh, that's true. One is religious and one is civil, but can you expand on that? Well, <clears throat> I don't think I can. <laughs> okay. Uh, at least you're being honest. And uh, I, I, I sort of did get at this one, I think, a little bit, of, you know, in a roundabout way. But the, the, the strict answer to the question is, is simply that uh, Jesus' kingdom is not of this earth. He right. tells everyone, he says, my kingdom is not of this earth. And so he really doesn't have successors, uh, c- uh, civic successors. The other thing is, is Jesus is God. And God is totally unique. And there are no successors. You can't say there's a success- successor to God. You know, God is now, you know, is, uh, was, God was, is, and ever will be all at once. And there's no change in God, and God is the prime being, the prime thing. And there can't be any successor. There's nothing greater than God. So in that sense, there couldn't be a successor either. So one, his kingdom is not of this earth, and two, he is God and really doesn't have any any successor at all. No one can take the place of Jesus or be God. So, you know, that that's also an answer as well. And uh, when we talk about successors, uh, we're talking about the successors to the apostles, really. There's no successor, actually, to Jesus Christ. He established people as his church, and there are successors to those people, but there really aren't successors to Jesus. He said he would be with the church, with us, uh, to the end of the age. And so, you know, there isn't any such thing as Jesus passing away as uh, the apostles passed away and needing someone to take their place. Oh, what about the Pope? Well, there's the Pope. There and are again, people that think that he, you know, as successor, he becomes the vicar of Christ. He is and then the he's vicar. taking Christ's place, but he's not. He's the vicar of Christ, yes, and uh, the priest or the pope can stand in for Christ in certain instances. You know, in, we just say in persona Christi. He acts in the place of Christ in certain instances, but that's all. But nevertheless, the popes, the bishops, the priests, and the laity were all men and uh, were certainly not God. And so they can't be a true successor in a sense that they can take the place of Jesus and the fact is, is that, you know, Jesus established his church and said he would be with it till the end of time. And uh, he doesn't, there is no, there's no necessity to replace Jesus like there is a necessity to replace the popes. Uh, right. The pope is a successor to the first pope. And uh, bishops and so forth and priests are successors to the first bishops and priests. But they're not successors to God. Right. So... That's the answer to that. Okay, here's one that is black and white. Black and white. Uh, does the confiteor at Mass forgive venial sins? There are venial sins and there are mortal sins. And when we call a mortal sin, a mortal sin, you know, kills. A mortal sin uh, is, leads to the loss of eternal life, whereas a venial sin uh, does not. But does the confidior at Mass, when we say the confidior, confess our sins, uh, does it remove and forgive venial sins? If you're contrite, you have true contrition, yes, it does. Yeah, that's true. And so does communion. In other words, uh, uh, 
uh, when it, venial sins can be forgiven without the sacrament of confession if the person is truly contrite, but not mortal sins, sins that are mortal, sins that can kill the soul or keep the soul from uh, going to heaven. Those sins need to be confessed, and we need the sacrament for those sins. But your venial sins, you know, the, the smaller sins that aren't deadly, and uh, they, they can be forgiven through the confiteor at Mass and also through communion as well. It, it removes uh, the venial sins. If you go in the proper uh, dis- disposition and you're truly contrite for the sins you committed. That's right. Okay. we go on to another one. Uh, this is an important one, I think. A lot of people can be confused on this one, and the church has had various answers on it over periods of time, and it has never really had a solid uh, dogma or doctrine on this, and that is the question, what happens to babies who die unbaptized? They're <clears throat> left in the hands of God, and we believe God is a merciful, loving God. So I think they're well ter- cared for, but we don't know. Yeah, that, that there has never really been a solid dogma developed uh, for babies. There used to be this idea of limbo. Uh, babies went somewhere where they didn't ever see God, but at the same time they weren't being punished. I think maybe it was Thomas Aquinas that had that particular uh, formulated that idea. But it's never; these have never been adopted as uh, dogmas or doctrines of the church. They're just explanations that have been given over time. At one time, people thought that if babies weren't baptized, uh, they might go to hell. And uh, the church has uh, concluded that that can't be the case because uh, a baby, you know, has committed no sin, uh, has is not has reached the age of reason, and really can't commit a sin. And so it would be unjust for a baby to suffer in hell for something that, you know, they're not able to uh, change or take care of. And uh, the church simply puts them in the hands of a merciful God, and whatever the treatment of an unbaptized soul in that sense uh, is, is, is merciful and just. And that's all we can know. Uh, we can speculate, but we really don't know. And the church is, possibly could be working and at some time maybe arrive at a doctrine that would more, more fully explain this because, you know, doctrines can, can grow and become more uh, comprehensive and understandable. So we'll see. But that's the answer right now. We're going to have to stop here and take a break. We're coming to the end of our first section. So we'll take a, take a break and come back and uh, talk a little bit more about some of these questions after the break. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. The Miracle Hunter is back. Mike O'Neill, EWTN's Miracle Hunter, is returning to Holy Trinity Church in Bloomington on Sunday, April 10th at 1.30 p.m. All ages will enjoy his interesting and inspiring presentation about the miracles of the Eucharist at Lanciano. To complement his talk, 160 of the Eucharistic Miracles of the World Exhibit will be on display in the church's lower level. To register or learn more, visit the Holy Trinity website or call 309-829-2197. I'm Deacon Al, your host for Good News here on Catholic Spirit Radio, and I have good news from Bishop Louis Tilka. The dispensation from the obligation of attending Mass due to COVID will end on Palm Sunday. 
it is once again time for all Catholics who are capable to return to in-person participation in the Holy Mass. Our faith community is incomplete without you. We invite you to return to Mass this weekend, and please continue to pray for those who still suffer from the effects of COVID. Hi, this is Bob Johnson. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break. We've been talking about questions and answers uh, from uh, the magazine Catholic Answers that people write in concerning uh, questions about uh, the dogmas and doctrines and theology of the church uh, that everyday people ask. And I've got a couple of magazines here that have been lying around uh, in my office for a while, and uh, I've decided to uh, use those today for a little break here. And I'm assuming that uh, my wife is being honest with me and that she hasn't uh, thumbed through these magazines and hasn't looked at the questions and uh, perhaps uh, practiced up some of the answers before they're being read here. I guess that's being a little bit suspicious, but sometimes I wonder. A little paranoia? (laughs) Because a lot of times when we do even get the black and white questions, she always gets the answers right, even though I get them wrong. And she's always attributing it to the fact that she had this Catholic education. But it's hard for me to believe that she can remember everything from back that far. So, Well, you didn't have this Sister Mary Gerald well, with her ruler. Well, maybe not. But then I have a suspicion that you were probably uh, one of the you know, people that weren't like me in, in, when I was in school who— sat in the back of the class somewhere, probably tried to hide to make sure the teacher wouldn't call on me. You were probably right up there in front, one of the outstanding bright Mm -hmm. students and all dressed up nicely. Well, yes. Handed all your papers in and everything on time. Without a smudge. (laughs) Because in Catholic school, you didn't have a smudge on your paper. And we wrote with ink. That's what I suspect. (laughs) Okay. At any rate, it says here... uh, you know, we get a lot of uh, accusations uh, from people, uh, some of our Protestant friends, that the Pope is actually the Antichrist. What's a simple way to answer that question uh, to respond to the claim that the Pope is, an anti- is the Antichrist? <laughs> that could be a long, drawn-out answer. Um, well, he's not because of the way he was selected. He was selected... Through the you know the as the intercession of the Holy Spirit to help select him, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a hint, and if you don't get this hint, then I'm gonna consider that your answer to the question uh, does not get at the kernel, the, the heart of the answer oh, given here. A simple happy. way, a very simple way to refute the claim that the Pope is the Antichrist, and it has to do with something that Saint John says. So that's the clue I'm giving you. See if you can get it from there. No, I'm drawing a blank. Okay, good. See, you don't. I I believe you now that you didn't read this because if you did, you would have the answer to this, and I wouldn't believe that you would remember something like this all the way from when you were in school, in grade school, and probably you would never have learned or studied this particular question anyway. But it says here. It says Saint John says. The Antichrist refuses to acknowledge that Christ came in the flesh and that Jesus is the Christ. But no pope has ever done this. 
So no pope uh, can be the Antichrist because this is what the Antichrist would do. He would deny Christ, and no pope has ever denied Christ. So the pope can't be the Antichrist. Now, that doesn't mean that the pope can't be a sinner, and that doesn't mean that we haven't had bad popes. We certainly have. And that doesn't mean that you couldn't call the pope an anti-pope in that sense. I mean, there have been you know anti-popes in the sense that they have not done their job properly, and they failed to live up to the reputation and the uh, standards of Christianity and living that they should. And, of course, all popes sin. They're, they're not, a pope may be infallible in the sense that when he speaks as cathedra about doctrine or dogma, in that sense, when he does it, especially along with the rest of the magisterium, after very, very carefully studying and, uh, you know, the whole situation, that he may speak for the whole church, but the fact is, is that uh, that doesn't mean that he's impeccable, and uh, it means that he certainly can sin, and of course all popes do because they're human just like us. But you can't have popes that, in, in fact, actually, you know, are worse sinners than others in other things. And uh, while a pope has never ever uh, taught uh, the against the dogma of the church or contradicted the dogmas of the church. From you know, from the uh, the chair that is ex cathedra has never done that. It doesn't mean that popes certainly haven't behaved in ways that are totally sinful and inappropriate to the way a pope should behave. Okay. Is there anything you want to add to that? No. Okay. So that would be the answer there. Okay. Another question is: What is dualism, and can you name the consul that condemned dualism? The consul of Ephesus. Um, I'm gonna, I, I don't think so. I'll get, I'll get on and, and read the, uh, the answer to the question. I think it was a different console than that, but I'll, I'll go on and you want to explain any more what it means? No, that's your department. Okay. It says here, the term dualism is used in a variety of ways. For example, it's used for the idea that the body and soul are two distinct substances, one material and the other immaterial. This is known as Cartesian dualism, deriving its name from the thought of the 17th century French philosopher René Descartes. It's also used to refer to the philosophical idea of Aristotelian hylomorphism, which unlike Cartesian dualism, denies that the soul and body are two separate substances, but like Cartesian dualism, affirms that the body and soul are distinct principles of the human person, the soul being immaterial and the body being material. So while the church recognizes that the soul is immaterial and that the body is material, it doesn't separate the two. And I think our modern society has a tendency to think in terms of dualism. You know, you get that in Star Wars, for example, the force and so forth. You get it in the movie Ghost, for people that ever saw the movie Ghost, where somehow or another, when we die, our soul goes out, and it's a non-material thing, totally separated from our body. And the church doesn't teach that. It teaches that the soul and body, you know, our whole being consists of the soul and body together. Even though the soul is immaterial and the body is material, the two belong together and at the end of time, the end of the age, our bodies will be restored. And just as, as Christ, you know, had a body uh, 
after he, his death and the reincarnation. So it, the same thing will be with us. And so this dualism that separates the two, the body from the soul, as if there are two somehow unrelated and different things called Cartesian dualism is rejected by the church in the hylomorphism, that is that the body and the soul together constitute the whole human being is what is believed by the church. Okay, but it doesn't say anything about the consul? Uh, I know it does here somewhere. And let's see if I can find it. Uh, Cartesian dualism. Let me look and see. Uh, You know, and it's important to understand Oh, here it is. The heresy was condemned by the Fourth Lateran Council. Oh, okay. I knew it wasn't the Council of Ephesus. Well, that was later. Yeah, by the Fourth Lateran Council when it was condemned, and that was in 1215. So, Mm -hmm. in its Confession of Faith, in which it affirmed that God is the creator of all visible and invisible things of the spiritual and the corporal. And that's what we say, you know, in the Creed. We say we believe in the visible and invisible. But the church also teaches that, you know, when we, your body, our body that you you have today, it will become corrupt, and you know what I mean. Yeah, you'll have yeah, a new it, body. Yeah, it'll be a different body. It'll be a different body, no doubt about that. It won't be the kind of body you have now. But nevertheless, human beings as we are now, and even in the future, you know, if you go to heaven, will be reunited with a new body, but it will still be a body. And there will be, you know, and we do have a body in this world, and our body is not separate from the soul. And and what this led to, uh, and the church really condemned, it led to Gnosticism, and it led to a lot of heresies in which somehow or another the material world was evil, and the spiritual world was good. And that sort of theme uh, still runs a lot through a lot of Protestantism, that somehow material things are bad and and uh, the immaterial things are good. There's this tendency that runs through, I shouldn't say all of Protestantism, it certainly doesn't, but some of Protestantism at any rate, and uh, the Catholic Church uh, rejects that. Or There's even been heresies in the past where supposedly there has been an evil God and a good God, and we find a lot of this dualism in the, uh, uh, like, uh, uh, Buddhism, and other uh, Asiatic uh, religions and so forth, it runs through it. You know, there's the good good things and the bad things, the yin and the yang, and the Catholic Church really rejects that. Uh, the, the, the devil isn't bad because the devil has a material body. The devil is bad because the devil has uh, an evil will, and it's the will that counts, and it's not the, uh, the body. And the world is good, the material world. God created the material. And therefore, it is good. We don't reject it. So those are some differences. Anything you want to add to that? No. Okay. It says here, what's wrong with just relying on personal testimonies of faith to persuade people toward Catholicism? In other words, you know, giving your own personal testimony or using the testimony of the saints, for example, of, uh, you know, some uh, miracle that may have happened to a saint or some revelation that a saint might have had or, you know, a personal conversion of a saint and so forth. What is wrong with using that from a Catholic point of view to try and convince people of the truth of Catholicism or the truth of God? 
Well, I don't think there's anything, you know, often we use examples of the saints and what they went through and how they lived their life. And, you know, in teaching other people how to do it. So, but what's wrong with it? I, yeah. Well, I mean, what's the flaw? I shouldn't say it's like it's evil or anything like that. But what's It's the, the interpretation, you know, I guess. Now, I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with it other than what's what's lacking in in convincing other people by using that particular method. Well, you don't have the principles, you know, you're not teaching the principles of the religion. That's true. But the, the fact is is that, you know, what why this question is being asked, I think is because a lot of fundamentalist Protestantism puts a huge emphasis on personal conversion, you know, on this idea of understanding that you're saved or understanding that you're the elect by having some personal revelation that lets you know that this is the case and putting a huge emphasis on these stories for showing that Protestantism or that person's, you know, is true. And the fault and flaw in that is, is that it's personal. I mean, someone can say, well, you've had some kind of an experience, but that certainly doesn't apply to me. I mean, you're... Right, we're different. You're, we're right, different. right. And mm-hmm. Catholicism is a religion that depends on both faith and reason, and you can... It follows a lot of Aristotelian teaching, that is the teaching of Aristotle, that you can arrive at the idea of God, that is a prime being, a first cause an unchanged changer, by simply the process of reason alone. And then, of course, we have in addition to that revelation and the teaching of the church, and, of course, the we can also show the reality of Christ by all of the evidence that we can show uh, that is reasonable and, uh, in fact, you know, unreasonable not to believe in the, the, the historical truth and so forth of Jesus Christ and also of the church. So Catholicism is not a simple religion. You can't learn it in five minutes or ten minutes or an hour. Uh, It incorporates a tremendous amount, and a lot of it is based on reason as well as on revelation and experience. It's not just something taken out of Scripture. It's something that was handed on to us uh, through the teachings of Jesus Christ to his apostles and then to their successors. And uh, we approach uh, faith in an entirely different way than just a personal experience. So, okay, I think that's what they're you know, trying to get at the answer, uh, a comprehensive answer. Uh, it says, you know, the, we can put out things that anyone can examine for himself, and if a person is rational and reasonable and come to understand that it makes a solid case for believing not only in God. First, we can reason, too, with our own reason, but then an understanding that since our reason can arrive at the fact there must be a God, then also our belief can arise at the fact that the testimony of the, the whole church, based on reason and on historical experience, is true and can be grasped in a way that uh, 
lays out evidence and uh, reasoning as well as revelation. So, and apologetics contains one of the best ways to present the objective, philosophical, scientific, and historical evidence for God's actions and salvation in history. Indeed, some people, such as the author of the, you know, the answering the question here, Trent Horn, who do not often feel God's presence very deeply in subjective experiences, there's a lot of people that don't. And there are a lot of people who are great saints that went through whole long periods of time in which, you know, they, they did not have that deep subjective experience of God, a whole dark blank, you know, uh, time in their lives. And yet they persisted because of the reasonableness of Christianity and the Catholic faith. So, right. Okay. Did that give a more complete answer? Yeah. And I see we're going to come up on a break here pretty soon. So I'll, I'll put this question out here for the audience out there to think about. The next question here, and then we'll come back and answer it after the break. But it says here, I brought some water to my priest to bless, and all he did was say a simple prayer over it. Was the water truly blessed or not? And you can think about that, and the people out listening can think about that. Was it blessed or not if he just did a simple prayer over it? So we'll come back and answer that question, and we'll have some more questions before the end of the program. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. His public life spanned just three short years, but the movement he started has never died out. Throughout the centuries, millions have assembled regularly to remember him, to worship him, committing their lives to his service and dying with his name on their lips. And at Easter 2022, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wishing you a blessed Easter from the village at Mercy Creek, where they live life joyfully every day. I'm Deacon Al, your host for Good News here on Catholic Spirit Radio, and I have good news from Bishop Louis Tilka. The dispensation from the obligation of attending Mass due to COVID will end on Palm Sunday. It is once again time for all Catholics who are capable to return to in-person participation in the Holy Mass. Our faith community is incomplete without you. We invite you to return to Mass this weekend, and please continue to pray for those who still suffer from the effects of COVID. The Miracle Hunter is back. Mike O'Neill, EWTN's Miracle Hunter, is returning to Holy Trinity Church in Bloomington on Sunday, April 10th at 1.30 p.m. All ages will enjoy his interesting and inspiring presentation about the miracles of the Eucharist at Lanciano. To complement his talk, 160 of the Eucharistic Miracles of the World Exhibit will be on display in the church's lower level. To register or learn more, visit the Holy Trinity website or call 309-829-2197. Hi, this is Bob Johnson. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break, and we've been talking about uh, some of the questions uh, in a magazine, Catholic Answers, that appear at the uh, end of the magazine in every issue. And uh, people write in asking questions about the faith. And I'm having a question and answer session here with my wife, and uh, a lot of the questions that we've been dealing with are sort of subjective in this particular issue. And uh, maybe before the end of the program, we can get to some that are a little bit more cut and dried. And I'll try to aim at some of those uh, for the last section of the show here. 
before uh, we started the break, we did get one that was sort of uh, pretty much a yes or no, cut and dried answer. It says, uh, you know, this person says, I brought some water to a priest to be blessed, and uh, all he did was say a simple prayer over it. Was the water truly blessed? What do you, blessed? What do you say, Lynn? Yes or no? Yes, I think it was because he has priestly power to do so. And how else would you do it? It would be an oral thing showing, you know, and a pleading to God to come to bless this water. Exactly. But I'm not a priest, so uh, I don't know. That's pretty much the answer. Exactly. The priest, uh, if he's truly ordained and uh, uh, he is a stand-in for Jesus Christ in certain situations, I mean, this is exactly what uh, we find in Matthew when— uh, you know, uh, uh, it was said of Peter, you are a rock, and upon this rock I will by church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, he gave Peter the power to act in his behalf when he was gone, but he says, at the same time, I will be with you to the end of the age. In other words... I will be there, you know, to guide you spiritually. And, of course, this is uh, how we arrived at the Catholic Church, the doctrine of the uh, infallibility of the Pope. It's not something that the Pope <laughs> retains on his own. It's a gift given to him uh, by God, by Jesus Christ himself, uh, to lead the church. And so a priest uh, is a stand-in in certain situations for Jesus. And so when he blesses the water. He has the authority to do that. There are actually, for a lot of these things, certain prescriptions that the priest ought to follow and does in a lot of cases. But if a priest didn't and his intentions are correct and gives it a simple blessing, the blessing is valid. So it would be. Uh, however, the, the validity of the blessing depends on the actual blessing of the water. The church provides three options in the book of blessings, but given the priest's ordination, a simple blessing of the water is sufficient. So the priest does so I thought. does have those powers. And those powers are handed on through the laying on of hands. And that has been going on in the church for 2,000 years, all the way from the time of uh, Peter up until today. And so uh, this is a power that was given to the, the uh, uh, priests and bishops by Jesus Christ himself and handed on uh, down through the ages. But here's, here's one that's pretty uh, cut and dried also. Uh, how can Mary be sin- sinless if Romans 3.23 says all have sinned? So, I mean, a lot of times our Protestant friends will say, how could, how could it possibly be that Mary was sinless or that someone is sinless when it says right in the Bible in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned? Are they saying that uh, God cannot do things? I mean, he created everything. He can create a person without sin. That is his prerogative, I guess you would say. That's a good answer, and also the answer is is misreading the Bible. I mean, the fact is is that in Romans, Paul is talking about a specific situation when he when it, it is in there all have sinned. 
because if we look at the overall uh, uh, teaching of the Bible, certainly all have not sinned. We certainly see that Adam and Eve were both born, you know, or created, I should say born, but created without sin. We know, for example, that a baby, a newborn baby, uh, is born without having any personal sin. We, we talk about the original sin, but that's not the same thing as, uh, as personal sin. So a baby uh, doesn't have personal sin. And we know from Scripture itself that uh, Mary's sin was taken away from her. The angel, you know, Gabriel comes and uh, says, you know, hail, uh, you know, uh, highly favored. What, what, you, what the, 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 the uh, greeting there is, is one who has been, uh, you know, uh, blessed to the full. You know, one full of grace. Yeah, one who has been graced to the full. That's the word I wanted. Grace. Hail Mary, full of grace, or Hail Mary, having been graced to the full. Well, right. if you're graced to the full, it means you're without sin. Right. And so the angel pronounces it himself. Mary herself is astonished. You know, how can this be, and so forth. Um, but the fact is, is that God can do things. You know, should He wish. And so the the other thing that we have to look at is that. The Bible was not written as some kind of question-and-answer text on how to be a Christian. It was written as a testimony to the things that actually happened. And uh, it wasn't written simply to be some kind of a answer. And each book of the Bible is separate, and even each part of each book is separate and deals with certain subjects and things. And what uh, Paul was dealing with here was a particular group of people and uh, talking about a specific instance about specific people. He wasn't trying to answer the question, is there anyone in all of eternity born without sin? That's not the question he was trying to answer. And so when you look at the Bible as some kind of a, a textbook, you know, some kind of a, a, a book that uh, tells you how specifically to be a Christian, that's not its purpose. Mm-hmm. And so when you try to make it do those kinds of things, you get into a lot of trouble. Anything you want to add to that? No. Okay. At any rate, uh, we'll go on. Uh, let's see. Let's go here to, to something else here. Uh, is it okay to pray to angels? Well, what you're doing when you're praying, you're asking for an intercession, and you do have a guardian angel. And that that guardian angel is here to guard you and help you through life, your spiritual life especially. And you can ask that they protect you more or take your request up to God. You're not praying to that angels or to the angels. You're asking them for help. That's you know. in that in that sense. Yes, you can. Generally, that's the case. I think this question is taken from a lot of times Catholics are accused somehow or another of worshiping, you know, something that's lesser than God, God. you know, Mm -hmm. to worshiping an angel. But prayer doesn't necessarily mean to worship. You know, you can use prayer to worship, but at the same time, prayer can be something, you know, is a petition. Prayer means to ask. You know, you ask somebody. We even use that phrase today. Pray, tell me, you know, the answer to that question, for example. And we use the word pray, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, uh, 
I'm asking you to do something for me. Right. The, the meaning of the word has changed right, a bit. Right. And so pray can mean to petition, to ask. And there certainly isn't anything wrong with asking an angel to intercede with God on your behalf. I mean, that's an Because they've seen the face, God. Right. They are always present to the face of God, faith, face of God that's always with them. And they might be, you know, able to get the job done quicker, you think? Uh, well, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, in other words, the, it, it goes back to the Apostle John, uh, you know, admits in Revelation 22. A lot, a lot, I think uh, this, this question, again, comes from a lot of accusations made, especially by Protestants, against Catholics for worshiping, you know, something uh, worshiping idols, worshiping something lesser than God. And the fact is, is that's not true. And we get that from John, where he admits in Revelation 22, that after seeing awe-inspiring heavenly revelations, he fell down to worship at the feet of an angel. And then the angel responded, you must not do that. He says, you know, I'm a fellow servant just like you are, and you can't get down and worship me. You know, John made a mistake. But the fact is, is that when we pray to an angel, we are not worshiping that angel. We are asking the angel to intercede for us on, you know, our behalf. And we would do the same thing, you know, with a friend. I mean, you know, you could ask your friend uh, to pray for you. And Protestants do this all the time and think nothing of it. In fact, that's what we're supposed to do as Christians, ask each other uh, to pray for us. You know, to pray. we're supposed to pray for each other. So it's not worship. And so it's perfectly okay to pray to an angel in the sense of asking the angel to intercede on our behalf. In other words, petition God for us just as we petition God ourselves, but add to it. And uh, this is perfectly okay because Catholics look at the angels and the saints and even the people in purgatory as not dead and apart and separated from us but still living and part of the church. Uh, you know, the, the saints, you know, are the church triumphant, and the uh, people in purgatory are the church suffering. Right, and the so, communion of saints, right, it's called. the communion of saints, and we ask each other to pray, for, you know, we, we, we ask to pray for each other, and so it's perfectly okay. Uh, here's a good one. Uh, a lot of people take the Bible, especially the Old Testament, a lot of atheists especially, or non-Christians and so forth, and accuse uh, Christians of worshiping, you know, sort of an evil God, and that a lot of God's laws are cruel and unjust. And so the question here is, isn't the, the uh, eye for an eye, you know, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, isn't that law cruel? So what would your answer to that be? It's not cruel. What they're really talking about is justice and what is just. I mean, you don't um, you don't give out punishment in excess of what the deed done was. I mean, for instance, if someone hurt someone else by their action, physically hurt them. Why you wouldn't, you know, and you had, you wouldn't give them the same 
treatment as you would as if they killed somebody. There has to be a degree of difference in your reaction to the action of the person. It has to be just, would not be just to overdo your reaction. Exactly. In fact, actually what a lot of people take as something being cruel was the beginning of steps away from earlier and primitive cruelty to more just and fitting punishment. The idea is the punishment has to fit the crime. Right. The punishment can't exceed the consequences of the crime. I mean, if a person slaps you in the face, for example, it's not the same thing as if they chopped off your wrist, (laughs) chopped your hand off at the wrist. And so the punishment has to be, you know, equal. It has to be appropriate. It has to be fitting. So, in other words, it's not asking for people to go out there and, and do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth somehow or another at the drop of a hat or someone, you know, someone steals a candy bar and you chop off his hand. Uh, it's saying you can't do that. I mean, you have to make the punishment fit the crime. It has to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But not liter- literally. And it doesn't have to be literally. It might have been at one time, but that would still be a more just punishment than one would be to kill somebody, you know, because he knocked somebody else's tooth out. We wouldn't do that. Uh, You might say a punishment would be on the scale of knocking up that person's tooth out would be fitting. Maybe he would be whipped or something like that. But the point is, is he certainly wouldn't be killed for knocking someone else's tooth out or even maybe poking someone in the eye. He wouldn't be killed. So it was actually a step up. Okay, Okay, let's see if we can go on. Get one more. Get one more in here. Uh, Let's see. Um, All right. If I can find something. I'm trying to look at a black and white uh, and see what we get here. Okay. Here's one. It's it's not exactly black and white, but uh, it is a little bit more, I think, here. We'll have uh, this one. Do souls in heaven, you know, we say it's important to have faith. Yeah, we all should have faith. What would be the Catholic answer to the question, do souls in heaven have faith? Do they have faith or not? Well, they've had faith. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. But they, once you get to heaven, we're taught that you understand a lot more than you do now. You understand and believe and see for sure what you've, you know, what is being, has been taught to you, and you understand why. So I don't know if you, I don't think you, you know, they do have faith like we think of it. Okay, your answer would be pretty much correct. There's a short answer is that no, the souls in heaven don't have faith, and the reason is is there's no necessity for it because they walk by sight. They no longer have to walk by faith. Uh, on the earth, as Paul said, we see through a glass darkly, but there in heaven we will see face to face, and that's exactly the thing. In other words, in heaven... Everything is revealed and made clear to the people that are there, and it's no longer necessary to have faith because they can see all the answers to all of the questions that they ever had. 
and so uh, it, it just simply isn't isn't a necessary thing anymore. So that's uh, would be the answer to that. And I'll get one more question in here. We still have one, and this is sort of a, a black and white question, and it refers to you know some of our uh, our Protestant friends. Uh, did Martin Luther reject the Epistle of James? You know, Martin Luther was the one that you know sort of like. Uh, talked against James and said that the James the it was epistle an epistle of straw, of straw mm-hmm. and uh, he said, you know, we uh, are saved by faith alone. He even wrote the word alone in there and disagreed with James on that. So uh, did he reject James? No. He did remove it at one point from his version of the Bible, but he put it back in. Yeah, he, yeah, he and he it. added some words like uh, faith alone. Yeah. He said, but no, he did not re- no, he totally did. reject it. He didn't. He said, I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove as the priest in Kallenberg did. I don't know who exactly that priest in Kallenberg is there that he's referring to. But the fact is, is he said, I almost, but he didn't. He put James back in. And I think later on he said that, you know, he is uh, reading James uh, can be beneficial and so forth. But he disagreed with uh he thought it was a weak epistle and uh, didn't agree with some of it. So at any rate, uh, we're going to have to stop here. we come to the end of our program. So I hope everyone enjoyed listening to some of these questions. And uh, a lot of them were sort of subjective, but I thought they were very interesting. And we'll have to do this again at some other time. In the meantime, we'll say our prayer. St. Michael, Michael, the archangel, archangel, defend us in battle. battle. Be our protection protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince Prince of the heavenly hosts, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you'd like to contact Bob, email bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Catholic Spirit Radio relies on your support to bring programming like this and EWTN 24 hours a day. Please help keep Catholic Spirit Radio on the air with your generous support. Donate online at catholicspiritradio.com. Or send a donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. That's Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Catholic Spirit Radio is a 501c3, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio 